Welcome to the AnthroArt Podcast, a space of anthropological insight connected to real-life situations. Here we explore topics of social inequality and inclusion, sustainability and the social self. We aim to bring a more nuanced understanding of our world and its challenges, but also inspiration and ideas on how to solve them together. We hope you enjoy it. Investigative or embedded research, fieldwork experiences in Ghana and Cameroon as lessons for anthropology at home. Written by Shaq van der Geest and read by Ahmed Algoni. My experiences with anthropological research in Ghana and Cameroon made me aware of the differences between doing such research there and here, between being a visitor in another country and being a researcher in my own society. Ghana. In 1973, I did fieldwork in Ghana about sexual relationships and birth control. One of the most worrisome findings was that young unmarried students lacked access to reliable contraceptives. In their attempt to prevent pregnancy that would threaten to place their entire future in jeopardy, some resorted to dangerous abortion methods that could damage their health, make them infertile for the rest of their lives, or even kill them. Others used harmless but ineffective methods and had their babies too early. Most of these girls never returned to school and indeed, saw their futures collapse before them. The irony of the situation was that the official planning organization did supply reliable contraceptives to married couples who were largely uninterested in using contraception. It was primarily the young and unmarried who were interested, but were denied access on the basis of formal traditional and Christian rules of morality. My attempt to bring these disconcerting findings to the attention of those who had the power to change the situation was limited to writing a series of six articles about the situation in the popular Ghanaian weekly, The Sunday Mirror. It produced only one reaction from the director of the National Family Planning Program, from here on referred to as the NFPP, indicating, rather implicitly, that his organization did allow unmarried youngsters access to its services. His statement did not alter the fact that young people continued to avoid the NFPP because they felt they could not go there. Three decades later, little had changed. Youngsters relied almost exclusively on informal trade in contraceptives and abortifacients. In 1980, I carried out research in Cameroon on the use and distribution of modern pharmaceuticals in hospitals, health centers, pharmacies, and informal drugstores and market booths. It proved to be another delicate and policy-relevant topic. The outcome of the research showed that public healthcare institutions suffered from serious shortages of medicines. Healthcare in the public domain was officially free, but because of the lack of drugs, free care had become an absurdity. People stopped visiting the health institutions that had run out of medicines or were forced to go and buy medicines outside of the hospital which resulted in them paying even more than those who had sought health care in private institutions. For the people, medicines were seen as the main reason for visiting a doctor or a public health nurse. A doctor without medicines was useless, a contradiction in terms. Two main causes of the shortage of medicines were 1. The bureaucratic sluggishness and corruption of those responsible for ordering and supplying medicines, and 2 theft and misappropriation of the medicines that had been delivered. 
One of the Cameroon Authority's main concerns was about the potential for political resistance among the urban population, particularly among those in the army and the police force. It is no coincidence, then, that the quality of health care for these groups was conspicuously higher than for the rural population. The fact that 50% of the health budget went to the central administration and the two central hospitals in Yaoundé and Douala, and that only 7% was spent on rural health care, speaks for itself. Shortage or lack of medicines was particularly disastrous in rural areas. The further the distance of a hospital or health center from the city, from where medicines were distributed, the longer the line of delivery and, therefore, the fewer medicines arrived at their destination. The most remote health center I visited received just over half of the medicines it should have received. A center in a rural town of about 5,000 inhabitants received 87%, the hospital in the divisional capital an estimated 90 to 100%, and the central hospitals of Yaoundé and Douala were even more than 100%. I added practical suggestions in my conclusions and managed to send a 200-page report in French to about 100 institutions, organizations including the Ministry of Health, and individuals within a few months of the end of my research. One of the suggestions was that it would be better to make people pay a reasonable price for medicines and actually supply them than to pretend to give them free medication while in fact giving them nothing. My recommendations did not fall on fertile ground, to put it mildly. The Ministry of Health took offense to my harsh criticism and said that they would never turn the hands of the clock back, meaning they would not give up the right of the public to access free medicine. I realized, too late, that my approach had not been tactful and had antagonized the authorities. The title of my report, for example, was already irritating before they even started reading it. La pathologie des services médicaux. The pathology of medical services. My personal love of provocation and literary style, such as paradoxes, worked counterproductively and failed to entice the policymakers. They took revenge. When I asked their permission two years later to conduct a short follow-up research, they responded that there was no need for it and refused to let me in. This happened in 1983, in the pre-digital era. The letter with this message had arrived three days before my planned departure. My flight had been booked. I decided to travel anyway and lied to the surprised officials upon my arrival that I had not received the letter. After long discussions, they begrudgingly handed me an autorization for three months, if I remember correctly. I did not attempt to send them follow-up policy recommendations. Reflection. Looking back on my anthropological career, I must confess that I have been almost entirely incapable of carrying out research that inspired policymakers, in spite of the fact that I always intended to render my research useful. I was attracted by hot and pressing issues that excluded certain categories of citizens from the rights and benefits they were entitled to enjoy, at least in my view. Social and political exclusion by authoritarian regimes logically drove me to the side of the oppressed. I saw my research as an investigative project, similar to investigative journalism. The anthropological method of lengthy periods of participant observation seemed an effective way to delve more deeply into the experience of discrimination and exclusion and analyze the real causes of it. Theo Balvé argues that, quote, violent economic situations in specific spaces 
can be productively studied through a hybrid style of research that combines techniques of investigative journalism with the conceptual and methodological commitments of ethnographic inquiry. Investigative ethnography can help provide a finer-grained account of violent economies, end quote. Obviously, research among marginalized categories, such as child soldiers, sex workers, illegal immigrants, refugees, and psychiatric patients, cannot be carried out in cooperation with those who cause their marginalization. Similarly, investigating the practices of violent entrepreneurs, human traffickers, criminals, political elites, corrupt politicians, religious fanatics, etc., can, in most cases, only be done by covering up the objectives of the research, as well as the intentions, even the identity of the field worker. The conditions in which I worked in Ghana and Cameroon may have been less dramatic, but the presence of political and moral authorities who suppressed the freedom and well-being of those I was trying to help by making them aware of the root causes of the problems was undeniable. The Ghanaian NFPP director responded politely that his organization was open to helping school-going teenagers, but the facts showed the opposite to be true. In all of their posters and communications, the NFPP portrayed happy Ghanaian families with two or three children. Happy because they had planned their family. I never saw the NFPP reaching out to the distressed and desperate schoolgirls who had risked their lives to hide and get rid of a pregnancy. These youngsters were not planning their families, but trying to prevent the shame and lifelong losses that would be the outcome from their unwanted pregnancies. The irony of the moral condemnation that prevented the NFPP from directing its attention to those who were in real need of so-called family planning was that the older generation had once gone through similar worries when they were young. Moreover, some of them were still involved in secret extramarital affairs and were likely providing their girlfriends with the necessary contraceptive means from the NFPP. My research in Cameroon took place in a society that was more in the grip of injustice meted out by pharmaceutical companies and corrupt policymakers. At the time of my research, the 70s and 80s of the previous century, a flood of publications appeared that described the infamous practices of pharmaceutical multinationals in the so-called developing world. The main criticism was that the pharmaceutical industry was conducting a purely commercial policy behind the facade of curing and relieving pain. Profit-making was facilitated by the weak position of consumers in the third world. The Cameroon Ministry of Health did not succeed in purchasing sufficient medicines because it spent too much of its budget on expensive, non-essential drugs. The World Health Organization Essential Drugs Plan was largely ignored and cheap generic medicines were often not available in public health facilities. This irrational policy of drug purchasing was, among other things, due to the mainly French industry's ability to manipulate the Ministry of Health's policy, which served the interests of individual policymakers and urban elites at the expense of the rural population. The Ministry of Health's displeasure with my research findings and recommendations was not surprising. I had behaved as a spy, a secret invader, looking for hidden machinations that accounted for the pathology of the country's healthcare system. My colleague, Corlene Farkefisser, taught me that applied anthropological research should, from the beginning, involve policymakers, health workers, and anyone who has direct interest in its outcome. The beginning of much research can already predict 
that the outcome will not lead to any practical action if none of the interested parties were involved in the decisions and preparation that led to the research. My own experiences confirm this. Any research that is designed for action should from the outset be conceived and planned with, or rather by, those directly affected by the outcome. Likewise, the end of much research is an alienating experience for the parties involved. Even if they became owners when the project started, they may still experience acute disownership when the researcher returns to his academic environment and, sometimes many years later, reappears with a fully completed text in which they've never had a say. Proceeding assurances of shared ownership turn out to have been fake, mere strategies to serve the interests of the researcher. Thus, also their willingness to accept and act upon the conclusions will melt as snow in the tropical sun. Would it have been possible to create and maintain such a feeling of shared ownership in the Cameroon case? I suspect that I would not even have been able to get permission for the research if I had been completely open about my intentions. Embedded research in this context would have been a self-defeating trajectory. My movements were watched. I often had to present my autorization before a visit or an interview. And once I was picked up by two policemen who took me into the police office to interrogate me. My freedom of movement in Ghana was different. I never needed to apply for an official permission. And I entered the town through the back door, as it were. To quote the Dutch poet, Gerrit Achterberg, I had reached the houses from behind. But in both countries, I avoided the local authorities. I disliked meeting and interviewing the elite and stuck to the ordinary inhabitants. Unlike some of my colleagues who had presented themselves to chiefs and other notables with bottles of Dutch-made Yenever, my approach may have spared me the worries about combining conflicting positions that had plagued my colleague Barbara Harrell Bond after her fieldwork. But it also prevented me from involving the elite in my explorations in their community. But there is still something else. In 1971, a Dutch sociologist, Enno Homus, wrote a brief comment on intercultural research cooperation in which he suggested that a critical attitude in research may be more feasible for expatriates than for researchers from the country itself. In India, he wrote, most critical evaluation studies were written by foreigners because their outsider position made it possible for them to be more independent. This may have been true in the case of India, but I'm convinced that my foreign identity in Cameroon made my critique extra irritating, if not insulting. Lessons for at home. These and other experiences made me realize that research in my own country would have had better chances of being relevant and helpful for policymakers. Journalists in the Netherlands are almost, per definition, investigative. They consider it their task to signalize abuse, mismanagement, corruption, malversation, injustice, and other wrongs, and to publish their findings in the daily press. When the scandal is big enough, the television will take it up, followed by members of parliament. The responsible minister will have to listen to the journalist's grievances and promise to take action. Academic dissertations that touch on distressing issues will be quoted and translated by journalists into clear, understandable language, which may also lead to public debates involving the responsible authorities. Without glorifying our democracy unduly, 
It is clear that the political system in my country makes it possible for citizens to speak up and criticize the government and lower political bodies without fear of punishment. Journalists play a critical role in this process. Good journalism, based on careful research and solid sources, and written in an accessible style, could serve as an example for applied anthropology. The objective of brokering information and understanding between parties has more chance of being achieved by clear, short, and attractive reportage. Anthropologists would do well to learn these skills from journalists, or to work with them, to spread the news about critical issues in society and how to improve social inclusion. This is possible here, at home.